and welcome to You Hear Me, a podcast devoted to young adult literature. I'm Alan Hoffman. And I'm Cody Hoffman. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about Salt to the Sea by Ruta Sepetis. We said it wrong. We had to look it up right before we came on air. (laughs) And I think you got it. Sepetis. Sepetis. Good job. I will probably say it wrong at least three times during this podcast. Or maybe we can take your friends with her on Twitter now. Right? Yeah, I sent out the tweet that was saying we were going to discuss uh, the show or the book and to make sure that you get in your comments. And uh, she she favorited it. So maybe we can just say Ruta. Yeah, Ruta, maybe, we're friends. Maybe. Right. We're besties on Twitter. <laughs> she didn't retweet it, which would have been cool. Ruta, we love you. Come on the show. But she did like it. Um, by the way, if you would like to see um, all the fun things that we tweet about, uh, that is You Hear Me Show on Twitter. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash You Hear Me Show. And, of course, there's good old regular Gmail, uh, which is You Hear Me Show at gmail.com. And we actually do have listener mail that we're going to get to kind of at the end because it's going to loop back all the way to Hatchet. Exciting, though. Yeah. We have our first, so, our first write-in. Uh, that's our second. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's understandable that you forgot about that because Salt to the Sea was an amazing book. It was, yes, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was very well done. I finished it in the day. Mm -hmm. Like, it was, It's. I mean, it is fast-paced. The the chapters, uh, as you know, because you read it, are very short. They're like two to three pages long. And so if you're one of those people that's like, oh, I will read one more chapter... Then you feel like you just have to read more because you didn't really read a chapter. Right. It was only a couple of pages. So you just keep reading and then the next thing you know, you're done with the book. Yes. Um, Salt of the Sea, if you're not familiar with it, it came out just in February, February 2016. Um, and we are recording this in March 2016. So it's a really new book. And it's it's kind of been on the bestseller list, I believe, I would hope. Um, and it's just been really fun to to look at. The the book chronicles four people as they make a voyage to find a refugee ship. This is set during World War II, so it is a historical fiction. Uh, they end up on the Wilhelm Gustav, uh, which is a refugee ship that is sunk near the end of World War II um, as the Russians are advancing on a crumbling Nazi regime. It, it just kind of follows these four teenagers um, as they make their way there. And uh, Cody, why don't you tell us about our first teenager? Well, I think it's Gustav, not Hoff. Gustav, there's an L. Just to throw that out there for our more picky listeners. Thank you. <laughs> um, so our our characters that we have, we have four different narrators in this novel. And the first one is Florian. He's a Prussian teenage boy who had previously been working as an art restorer for the Reich. He also has a secret. Well, they all have secrets, essentially, but he has a secret that deals with his past and with his art restoring. We have Alfred, who is terrible, but is also my favorite, I think. He's a German soldier with delusions of grandeur. Yeah, he was... So Alfred, I think he he's... Because he was one of my favorites, too, at least early on, because he's funny. Alfred's device is he writes these letters kind of in his head to um, his girlfriend. I'm doing air quotes right now, which you can't <laughs> see, but... Um, yes, and you learn more about that towards the end um, of the book but, as well. And, and it's, he's, I'm going to get another medal, I'm going to be promoted, 
Uh, I'm making my way through the ranks. Um, everybody loves me. I'm basically a Nazi rock star is more or less how he puts it. And then the narration will snap out of the letter, which is written in italics, and back into regular typeface. So it's, you know, back into reality. And, you know, people are like, have you scrubbed the toilets out yet, Alfred? Or I'm puking on my shoes or... Yeah, there's there's <laughs> one where he, they're on the ship and he's like, I'm having no problems whatsoever on, with seasickness, sea and then it pops back into reality. I threw up all over my shoes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Alfred, while being the worst, he's he's there for a little bit of comic relief as well. Uh, so after that, we have Amelia, who is a Polish teenager with a tragic past. Uh, her parents uh, took her to this farm, thinking it would be safer there. But then, when Russians come. Uh, mm -hmm. and take over the farm and are looking to rape the farmer's daughter, uh, the farm couple um, gives up Amelia instead. Yeah. So she has a very tragic story. And then we also have Joanna, who's a young Lithuanian nurse uh, who is uh, just kind of on the run from the Soviet Union, basically, uh, trying to find somewhere that's safe in Europe which obviously tail end of World War II is few and far between. There are also a couple of other characters whose viewpoints we don't get, but are large parts of it. There's the wandering boy. There's Eva, who's just kind of referred to as a large woman. And then I, I absolutely love this term, the shoe poet. He's a former cobbler and his comments on everything are, I mean, you can cure your life if you have the right pair of shoes. And I just, I love that term, shoe poet. It's amazing. Yeah, here's a here's a quote from the shoe poet, kind of early on when we first really meet him, and he's trying to say, "Well, your shoes tell your story," and it's Joanna who is like, "No, nah, that's not true," and he says, "Yes, always your boots. They are expensive, well made. That tells me you come from a wealthy family. But the style is one made for an older woman. That tells me they probably belong to your mother. A mother sacrificed her boots for her daughter." That tells me you are loved, my dear, and your mother is not here, so that tells me that you are sad, my dear. The shoes tell the story. And he's just full of like those kind of things um, late, you know, throughout the book. Uh, there's another one uh, later on when they're trying, people are trying to get basically boarding passes for this refugee ship, and they will literally buy children um, from couples. Because they have a better chance of getting on a ship. Yeah, they have a better chance of getting on if they've got a kid. And this woman says, how much for the kid, which would be the wandering boy that is um, part of this gang. And the shoe poet says in response to this woman saying that everyone has a price, he says, but clearly not everyone has a soul. Uh, so he's he had, takes kind of a larger view perspective on things. And so I think um, he's kind of a refreshing person in the in the book as well. I think it's interesting talking about the shoes and then there's a very famous display at the uh, Holocaust Museum in American Washington DC um, that deals with the shoes. We are the shoes and just all the shoes piled together and it's it just made me really think of the shoe poet and made me think of that display in yeah. Washington DC. Yeah, for that display, I mean, the, sh the shoes there tell a very powerful story. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, there's a there's a connection there as well. Uh, so with this being a a historical fiction, uh, there there's a lot of really cool history in here, and this is definitely a book uh, that you'll want to have a computer handy nearby so you can go and 
and look up some stuff. Uh, one would be the the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustav. I think so, yes. I think we got it that time. <laughs> uh, which is actually the biggest or the deadliest maritime disaster in world history. Tens of thousands of people died, I think. It's a German ship. 9,000. 9,000. So uh, 9,000 people died. They packed them onto this ship. That The ship is only supposed to carry like a couple thousand people, but they packed them onto this ship. And then the, the Soviets um, shoot torpedoes at it to sink it. Uh, and there's actual, uh, there's not enough lifeboats for everybody. There probably wouldn't have been anyway with how many they were crowding on. But then I think 12 of the 20-some lifeboats that they were going to have were missing. Mm -hmm. So that complicated things even further. And so it's this, this massive disaster uh, at the end of World War II as people are trying to get get away from it. And this is all part of Operation Hannibal, which uh, was something that I didn't really know existed, which was kind of a mass evacuation event from yeah. Europe. And there were a lot of, uh, it wasn't just the Wilhelm Gustloff that was torpedoed by um, the Soviets during this time. So there were more than just the 9,000. It was just that one specific ship. But yeah, Operation Hannibal occurred just to um, evacuate from the, around the Baltic Sea, the Prussia area, and get them uh, the refugees back to Germany. And then one of the other historical lessons that uh, comes out of this would be the Amber Room. Yeah. Uh, so Florian is who is our art restorer. restorer. There we go. He uh, he actually takes a piece of the Amber Room because the Nazis have stolen it. Hitler's favorite piece. He takes Hitler's favorite piece, a, an amber swan, mm -hmm. uh, and he hides it in his boot. So again, there's that shoe motif. Yeah. Uh, and and he's hiding it away, and only he knows where the Amber Room actually is, and sort of the people that he was working with um, end up getting killed at the end of World War II, so that remains a mystery. The Amber Room is a actual piece of artwork that was stolen from the Prussians by the Nazis in World War II, and as things start to go south for the Nazis, they boxed it up, they hid it away, and nobody knows where it is at. No, it's still a mystery. And right. if you're interested in learning more about that, you can check out a podcast um, from Stuff You Missed in History on the Amber Room. Yeah, and that's it's a really, really cool podcast. And they talk about the curse of the Amber Room in that episode as well. Uh, but you can, hear, you can learn a lot more about the history of the Amber Room, um, the artwork, uh, what went into making the Amber Room, and then just sort of the... Uh, different historical tidbits that have happened as people have tried to find it. So, yeah, check that out from the good people at Stuff You Missed in History class. Uh, it's the Amber Room. Well, Alan, what was your favorite part of the book? The whole thing? <laughs> um, I I really liked this this books. I mean, they're kind of, they're, they're almost kind of like scattered. Um, and there's a time like when they get to the, the town, the port where they're going to be at, that they seem to be separated. And I think when they all kind of get back together, um, that's a really cool part of the book, um, when they're able to kind of catch up with each other and sort of make plans. Limited, though, because Florian kind of has to go into hiding because uh, some people were kind of onto him uh, when they get onto the boat. Um, but then when they start to actually to, to be able to interact with Alfred, um, I think is, is kind of fun because you start to see how uh, people view him. Yeah, other... what a total just boob he is pretty yeah. much and I think that I think that's really fun and then uh, he he thinks he's 
and they kind of they trick Alfred into thinking that he's on like this secret mission uh, to help the Fuhrer basically directly, uh, and so he's ferrying messages. But then you can just see how Alfred just kind of messes everything up. And so, I mean, maybe that's not like you know a great part, but I think just when all the characters um, are able to interact with one another, I think uh, it takes the book to that that next level. I enjoyed the attention to detail, how much, for example, Eva, Eva hated um, Emily just because, Amelia, just because she was Polish and it just kind of reflected the viewpoints on um, how they felt about the Polish people. Uh, I also enjoyed definitely the, the writing. One part that I really marked was they now pushed and floated like human driftwood near the harbor. And I just, I loved the imagery that she used in comparing her metaphors and similes. I just, her writing is very beautiful and poetic. Yeah, and I think the, those passages that I read from the Shoe Poet kind of reflect that as well. Uh, one thing that I that I really appreciated this uh, is it, it kind of takes, this, the Soviets are actually kind of the bad guys, if you will, in this book, which I, you don't really get out of World War II, mostly because they were part of the Allies. Uh, they were part of the Allied forces, and so, uh, but, I mean, obviously the Red Army committed horrible things. I think that's one of the reasons why um, Ruta, our good friend Ruta, wanted <laughs> to write a book like this. Um, she's uh, Lithuanian-American, uh, and so this, she can connect with this history, and she wants to bring it to light. Uh, and she really paints the picture of that the Soviet Union is is not a good force, uh, there's that one point in the book where they they say it's harder, it's becoming harder and harder to tell uh, who is good and who is evil in this war, uh, because the places like Lithuania are getting invaded from both sides, and they have they're just kind of caught in between these two powers. Yes, the the war is just it's everywhere, and there's no clear line on who's good and who's not, which kind of takes us into some questions that we have for each other, I think. And one of them was, is there an antagonist in this story? Like you would say, like, typically it'd be like Alfred, but he's just kind of a bumbling idiot. He's also, I think, used to convey a lot of knowledge about the Wilhelm Gustav, because he's there, they're preparing the ship for these refugees, so he's a tool that she's using. Yeah, and so and and I mean he does make things difficult for them at the end, but I, I mean he's not like actively going against them. I don't know that there's uh, an actual like you can point to this person as being the antagonist. I think it's just sort of the horrors of war might be the antagonist. And it's all building up to what we know is going to happen that the ship is going to sink and we can assume, you know, people are going to die. Well, I mean, the front cover shows a stormy sea with four life preserver mm -hmm. rings um, that are just kind of floating, and they're empty. In a stormy sky. So, yes. you know, there's, I mean, even from the front cover, you know, okay, there's going to be death in this book. And then if you Google the name of the ship, you're going to find out pretty quickly that it's a horrific event. So it, it kind of leads up to sort of an inevitable conclusion um, some of our protagonists, as you know, you've read the book, make it, some don't, but uh, there's not really an antagonist. I, mean, I guess you could go with the Soviet army, the Red Army, 
Yeah. But they're not ever, like, except for a few soldiers, they're, they're not, portrayed. like, on the scene. Right. They're... We just learn of the atrocities they've committed from the past. But we don't have any one confronting antagonist where it's them versus the pro protagonists. So that, that makes the book kind of unique. Or as, maybe as the well. whole war is the antagonist because yeah. of what it's doing to people, what it created. I mean, because of the war and the Nazi um, ideas, they created Alfred and put him in a position of limited power. Another question that we had for one another is why in this book does she choose to have four first-person narrators instead of one omniscient narrator? And I think this is really interesting because when you have two of them like in the same room, this happens early on. I believe it's with uh, Florian and Joanna. They're like in the same room or cabin. You get like the first part of their encounter from Florian's perspective and then it flips to Joanna's perspective the mm -hmm. next chapter. Um, and so you get this event. And it's not like she recaps the same thing. It's just, you know, for these five minutes, here's what Florian is experiencing. And then for the next five minutes, here's what Joanna is experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, so why do you think she chooses to do that? Well, um, I think Alfred, like I was saying, is used as a tool for us to learn more about the Wilhelm Gustloff and them getting prepared for this Operation Hannibal, getting the ref refugees out and what they're doing. Uh, it al also portrays some of the ideas of the Nazi regime. I think she chooses from different parts, Emily or Emilia. She is from Poland. So it gives that viewpoint. It gives the Prussian viewpoint with Florian and then Lithuanian with Joanna. It takes, you know, it's not just one perspective. It's not just one culture that is being impacted by this. It's this whole European area that she's expressing with all of her different narratives. I think her short little chapters, they um, keep it very like a, a quick read and you want to get into it the next person's head right away just to understand how they maybe thought of that event that just happened in the story. Yeah, and I think one of the things too is that I think a lot of times with war, we see it as like this big, huge event, which it is, but there are also very deeply personal things that happen to war. Uh, and I think this is her way of kind of digging into personal experiences that make war the personal choices that people make to survive in a war. And I, I think she wanted to really make sure that as a reader, we we saw that and recognized that in her narrators, or, yeah, her narrators, uh, that we could get a, a, a look at kind of the personal toll uh, that war takes. And on Alfred's side, uh, a personal view of how someone might think when they do get swept up in nazism and fascism um, what their mindset looks like uh, and it it puts kind of a human face on both sides of the war and i i think that's one of the reasons why it's so good mm -hmm. very well done uh did you did you think the characters came off as teenagers alan they didn't they didn't to you huh? they did not to me uh and i think that might be because i mean alfred does obviously uh, poor alfred but, uh, no, he's a Nazi. I'm he's shaking terrible. my head no, not poor Alfred. <laughs> he's, he's literally the worst. Um, I just mean we pick on him a lot today in this podcast. Yes. But, 
And I think it's because they are thrust into, you know, very adult situations. Florian is got a piece of art uh, that he's trying to steal away. Amelia is is pregnant with a child that comes from that that experience that uh, when she was raped um, by Soviet soldiers. Joanna has is you know a, ba- a battlefield nurse, and she's made a decision that resulted in family members being killed. Yeah, and so while they are young, they they never struck me as being young adults. How much do you think, though, that is a reflection of wartime, them having to be older and act differently in wartime versus, I mean, we work with young adults every day, and obviously if you're trying to imagine one specific student as Florian and, you know, oh, he would never make those decisions or something like that. Well, yeah, and I think, but I think that's why I I didn't see them that way is because the war has made them grow up fast. Um, I think they even talk about that, how war had made them be, have to become more mature because they have to do things to survive. I mean, if if you compare it to, like, say, the Hunger Games, because there's a lot of war and fighting, obviously, in the Hunger Games, but Suzanne Collins in those books always has sort of a love triangle in the background mm-hmm. that kind of reminds you that these are still kids trying to figure things out. There's nothing like that in this I mean, I think Joanna and Florian a little. Yeah, well, and I honestly, I was just going to say right away, as soon as Florian starts to join their group and it looks like he's going to be a permanent part of their group, I automatically just saw them as like a mother-father figures for the group. Yeah, and again, mother-father. They weren't, it's not a love triangle. There's not a lot of teenage angst. It's, okay, these two are in charge now and that's probably pretty good. And I think that that reflects back to the horrors of war. These kids, they didn't, they don't get a childhood. They have had to grow up really quickly. And what constitutes a family after war? I mean, that they become the mother-father figures for this group, even though the shoe poet is an old man. But he's following them. Yeah, it's just, it's, you and I both know, working with young children, we have students, too, that uh, they have to grow up fast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe not to the extent that these characters have had to, but sad to say, it, it's out there that they have to deal with things that they shouldn't as kids. But right, yeah. I guess kind of to piggyback off of that one, uh, since you know the the characters they don't necessarily come off as teenagers. Why would young readers like this book? This library. <laughs> I think, well, and honestly, I had a a copy of the cover up on because I keep track of all the books I've read for the year and have them up so the students can see what I'm reading. So I have, I've read in 2016 and then a copy of, of each of the books, the cover. And I had one up there and I was talking to an eighth grade boy and he right away, he saw that cover and he was just like, what's that book about? Because he really likes survivor stories. So I think the survivor element does follow through in there. I think World War II is just something that fascinates students in general, and especially for, at least in my school, eighth graders, they are learning and doing reports on a lot of World War II information. So big events in history, I mean, think of how many books there are about the Titanic that are out there. And so even ones who are interested in Titanic, I would probably grab this book and be like, you should read this if you like, you know, maritime disasters at all and read this. 
I think kids are really drawn to survivor stories. And if you look at what sells in young adult literature, it's a lot of dystopian fiction. And World War II is, you know, quite literally a dystopia. Uh, there's no way around it. And I think that's why students can really get drawn to World War II books in particular. Uh, and I think that's why they would like this one. I mean, they are they're fighting against a oppressive regime trying to escape trying to make a life for themselves I mean it checks off all of the the young adult dystopian checklists that you would have to go through um, but it's historical fiction and I think and I think maybe the fact that it's real you know it, it lends itself an air of credibility that maybe some other books don't mm -hmm. and I, I think uh, I think this one would have appeal to a lot of readers and I think just the fact that it doesn't cover the same you know, the same typical stories that we hear about World War II, I think makes it uh, something that kids can really get into because they're not just reading the same story over and over again. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to know very much of anything about the Wilhelm Gustloff because not very many people know anything about it. And I think she's trying to bring that out into the open so that it's talked about more. And this would be a great opportunity to talk about that in history classes. And um, students are definitely going to start Googling and, you know, looking for more information on this maritime disaster and what Operation Hannibal was. And if they can trust what she wrote, if it's actu actually accurate. Yeah. And I, I think this will, this can kind of do a segue into our journal prompts. Yes. Uh, we were we were reminded in an email that we are educators and maybe we could you know do some general prompts if you were gonna uh, teach this in a classroom or something like that uh, and so we we came up with a couple of them and uh, the first one is the, you know ask students that you have what parts of World War II uh, would they be interested in knowing more about that aren't generally the focus of American history books you know we had things such as Japanese internment camps here in the United States, um, to involvements from countries that you don't hear a whole lot about. Right, Australia or the impact in other places of the world that you really don't know that much about, but that it did impact. And uh, by the way, if you are interested in a kind of under-the-radar uh, World War II story, um, you could check out the podcast Radio Lab. And uh, last May, they did an episode called Nazi Summer Camp, which details uh, prisoner of war camps in the United States where Nazi prisoners were held, uh, and just kind of what those camps were like and the effect that they had on local populations in the United States as well as the war effort as a whole. A really fascinating listen. Uh, we'll try to send out, we'll put up links to uh, the podcast that we've referenced here up on our, our blog, uh, so you can check those out as well, but that would be another one that you could check out. Um, what's another journal prompt that uh, teachers could give their kids with this book? Well, I was thinking about the fact that we don't hear from or meet any of the narrator's parents, and yet the parents play such a large role in the outcomes and decisions that these narrators face and the decisions they make in this novel. So you could ask your students, what part have your parents played in your decisions in your own life? And are still influencing in your life right now. Yeah, and I think you could get a, a wide variety of responses in that and maybe some eye-opening responses to that as well. So I think, um, you know, good and bad. So I think that I think both of those would, would be some avenues of exploration that you could have 
in your classroom. So if you liked this book, if you liked Salt to the Sea, which I'm sure you did, we've been raving about, I have told like five people um, in person that they need to buy this book or read this book, uh, including the librarian at my school. Uh, so you might enjoy The Book Thief, um, which is just an, an awesome read. Uh, Prisoner B3087, uh, which is one that my students like to read. There's always somebody that's reading oh, yeah. that one. That's very popular. And then uh, Night, which is um, also nonfiction and obviously details life in a concentration camp. So really, really intense book. But if you like this one or if you have a student that got into this book, those might be ones that uh, they like. Also, you might want to check out um, other books by Ruta Zepetis. Uh, Between Shades of Grey is a novel that looks at the Soviet Union and it takes place, I think, in the 1950s. So it's after World War II, but I think if you were a fan of this book, you would definitely like it. You could also check out her, another of her books. It's Out of the Easy, but don't be expecting tie-ins necessarily that are like salt to the sea as that one takes place in new orleans but i mean obviously she's she's a a really good author this is my first book that i read from her but i definitely want to check out those books because uh, salt to the sea was so good uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to see how she handles other things mm, yeah. so should we rate salt to the sea Yes, we should we should start a rating system, I think. All right, so we have referenced Gilmore Guys before <laughs> on this podcast, and they watch every episode of Gilmore Girls, and then at the end they rate it. They change the rating system every time to refer to that episode, and we thought, because when you're teachers, you actually steal a lot from yes, other teachers. steal ideas. Uh, we would just kind of steal this from Gilmore Guys, and we would rate uh, the books that we read. Yeah. So, Cody, what would you rate uh, Salt to the Sea? Well, we should establish here. Is it 5 out of 5 or 10 out of 10? Or... Uh, we'll do this out of 5. Do out of 5. Okay. So, I very much enjoyed this book. I thought it was wonderfully done. So, I'm, I'm probably going to give it um, 5 out of 5 Amber Room Silver or Gold Swans. Or right. amber swans, probably, huh? Yeah, amber swans. I don't think there's any... <laughs> there's a little gold leaf in there. Listen to the Stuff You Missed in History podcast. You'll learn all about it. Um, I would give this also 5 out of 5. I mean, I loved this book. I've been mm -hmm. raving about it for a couple of weeks now. So I'm going to give it 5 out of 5 shoes. Oh, nice. I loved The Shoe Poet. That was just my favorite. I the loved Shoe that. Poet was awesome. We got a couple of books that we're going to throw your way that we're going to be doing next. Um, this is also a request that we uh, do more than just like one book at a time. Uh, so we're going to do the next book that we're going to talk about is I'll Give You the Sun by Jandy Nelson. I'm super excited to read it. I have no idea what it's about, but it's won a bunch of awards from 2015. It has, and it's actually, I think, in the summary, it doesn't give away a lot, except that it's about some twins and something's happened. And really, I mean, that's all it really says in the summary. So, mm. but it's getting a lot of awards and I would be excited. To, I'm excited to read it. Yeah, I'm, I'm super stoked to read it. And then after that, uh, so we'll do I'll Give You the Sun in hopefully two weeks. We're educators. Life happens. Sorry that we're a little bit late on this one. 
Um, but hopefully in two weeks, or at least the very next episode will be, I'll give you the sun. And then the one after that, um, so two more weeks, so about a month away, we will do the Young Readers edition of I Am Malala. How one girl stood up for education and changed the world. And if any of you have checked out the National Geographic documentary, uh, he named me Malala. It might be a good companion documentary with the book. Yeah, and that is actually uh, on our DVR yes, right now. Yes, we need to watch it. <laughs> so we need to watch it. Uh, and we are going to be discussing the Young Readers edition. There is a normal edition of that book, too. Adult, not normal. Uh, yeah, an adult version of, <laughs> of I Am Alive. I don't know what the difference is. Probably just it's a little bit um, thinner, the Young Readers edition. And it probably... Uh, it has a different co-author than mm -hmm. Malala. It has P Patricia McCormick. And she is a young adult author, so maybe it just kind of gears it down a little bit. Yeah, to I'm, I'm going to guess the language can... isn't as complex right, uh, as it is in the, the adult version. But that would be the one that we read is the Young Readers Edition. Um, but probably either or that you want to read uh, and give us some feedback on that. So that is next. So we've been alluding to it. <laughs> we have reader mail. Uh, and we've we've kind of touched on a lot of um, Jack John's points. He uh, he he wrote us in, uh, and one of the things that he talked about is he wanted to see a little bit more analysis in the show. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, we did that, Jack. We uh, tried. We tried. <laughs> uh, we didn't recap uh, this as as much as we did with Cinder. So hopefully, uh, this was a little bit better. And I think too, if we wanted to run this as a book club, kind of. Yeah. More analysis would be good. So thank you for that suggestion. But he also wanted to talk about Hatchet, uh, and in particular the focus on the ending, which, as you will recall, we were not so stoked about. Uh, and he says, uh, for the ending of Hatchet, Paulson uses what is called a dos ex machina technique. Uh, this is a common technique used by several authors in all of literature. And if you're not aware, um, dos ex machina is basically... When an unsolvable problem, like being, I don't know, trapped in the woods with no help of rescue, uh, is magically solved out of nowhere, like when a plane lands and, and a rescues you. a transmitter is found in a backpack. Yeah. Uh, and so, magically works after being underwater. Yes. Yeah, so, yes, Paulson does use a dos ex machina. And so he wanted to want us to talk about that. And so, Cody, what, what are your thoughts on Paulson using the dos ex machina in terms of the ending. I recognize that, you know, it, it's used and, you know, it should that have been in the backpack and magically worked, that's awesome. But I do feel like there were some ideas that weren't all the way fleshed out at the end. Like maybe just one more chapter even might have been nice for him to kind of, for us to see what his plan might have been with that gun that he found and what his winter plans might have been. Yeah, I... My problem with the ending wasn't necessarily that the plane came because uh, the the transmitter worked. He was able to, I mean, it was kind of explained. Maybe it's not the strongest of explanations, but, I mean, it's still an explanation. My problem is, you know, like with the gun, there's th and even the food that he gets, he, he says it removes him from nature, and he's and he, even, Paulson even writes that they, he doesn't know how this makes him feel. That Brian doesn't know how he makes this feel. And he's like, I'll deal with those feelings later. And then three pages later, the plane comes in and rescues him. So he never has to deal yeah. with those feelings. Although you could mention that in one of the other books, doesn't he, 
he wants to return to the wild because like those feelings of being removed from nature and being with humans and people i mean it could have technically been addressed maybe in a later book yeah but. he I th and i think even with brian's winter which is if that plane doesn't come he probably addresses them but from strictly looking at Hatchet, yeah, I kind of felt a little bit cheated. At yeah, the I wanted one more chapter. I think even could so, have helped. So. But uh, Jack, thank you so much for your email. We appreciate it. Um, hopefully, we've worked your suggestions in into this one. And write us again. Yeah, write us again. Let us know if we did it right. And and everyone else, you can write us in as well. Um, your thoughts, obviously, on Salt to the Sea, or I'll give you the sun. Um, if you've read I Am Malala, you can even write us about that, and we'll try to get that in in uh, about a month uh, when we do that. Uh, if you want to contact us, many ways that you can do that. There's Facebook, facebook.com slash show. Twitter is at show, and then email is show at gmail.com. And we'll also get up some uh, show notes and links to you on yahearmeshow.blogspot.com. Yes, all our many podcasts. You can tell we listen to a lot of podcasts if you haven't guessed already. Yeah, we'll probably we'll probably name drop a few more of them as we go along. So, any last words from you, Cody? Read Salt to the Sea. Read it. It's it's a great book. You will not regret it. Uh, so, uh, just a few more thank yous just to get us uh, out of here. Our theme music is Josh Woodward. The song is Overthrown. You can find more of his work on joshwoodwork.com and our cover art done by Justin Davis. The lights are on.